to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. There was so much news this week that I barely know where to begin. Since this is a program about the news, though, let's start with a week's big stories. Beginning with the economy, because with everything turned upside down because of the pandemic, the economy is supposed to be a bellwether for everything else. Well, not so much. The economy is as mixed up as any other parts of our lives. This past week, for example, the price of a barrel of crude oil fell from a barely acceptable $35 a barrel to an unbelievable minus 25 cents a barrel. Minus. And when the market opened on Tuesday morning, oil was trading at one cent a barrel. That has never happened before. Never. Wow. It was a disaster call for the oil industry all around the world. And it all began earlier in the year with a price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia. Here's how it all started. Saudi Arabia wanted to pull back on production in line with OPEC to match their prices in order to stabilize the price of oil on the international market. But Russia refused and kept pumping oil, which pushed the price of oil down even further. By the beginning of March, when Russia again refused to pull back on its oil production, Saudi Arabia retaliated by also increasing its output and driving the prices even further down. The war was on. And once the oil started flowing, there was no stopping it. It started a chain reaction that is still going on. But that was only part of it. When the pandemic started to impact the world in earnest and governments began to respond, the global demand for oil decreased sharply and the price per barrel dropped a lot. Not only was the price of oil declining dramatically because of the price war, but the demand for oil had dropped precipitously as well because of the pandemic. Airplane travel around the world had been sharply curtailed. Stay-at-home orders were keeping people at home, and therefore they were not driving. And a perfect storm of oversupply and under-demand began to take place. So the oil storage facilities on land got full all over the world. And by mid-March, analysts were predicting that oil companies were close to reaching a tipping point. Because once the price of oil dropped below $30 a barrel, the oil companies would not be able to stay in business. Then on Monday, the price of crude oil dropped suddenly to far below $30 a barrel. It dropped below zero. For the first time in history, producers would have to pay, theoretically, to have their oil removed from its ships. I say theoretically because there was no place to put it, because all the oil storage facilities were full. There was a glut on the oil market. So there was nowhere for the ships that were carrying the oil to offload it. And today, there are something like 160 million barrels of oil being carried in tankers around the world, plying the sea lanes with no place to unload their cargo. Now, a tanker has an average load of about 750,000 barrels of oil. 
So that means roughly some 213 tankers are cruising around the oceans of the world with full loads of oil and no place to go. So by the end of the day on Tuesday, the price of crude oil was up to barely over $9, hardly at a level that would provide optimism to anybody in the industry. President Trump has promised to take advantage of the low prices of oil, and he told a group of reporters at the White House, quote, based on the prices of oil, I've also instructed the Secretary of Energy to purchase, at a very good price, large quantities of crude oil for storage in the U.S. Strategic Reserve. We're going to fill it right up to the top, unquote. If his plan is approved by Congress, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve will provide major oil security for the country for a very long time. And what about the lack of storage capability? Well, the president said, quote, we'll ask for permission to buy it or store it. One way or the other, it will be full, unquote. So that, for the moment, is the big story about oil. Depending on how much oil Trump is willing to buy to fill our strategic reserves, it may make a difference in the outcome of this particular crisis. And then there is the opening up of America, the reopening of America. That's another big story, filled with controversy, and it's happening right now. When the president called for the states to impose safety regulations on its populations, he was trying to stem the spread of COVID-19. The predictions were awful. They suggested that hundreds of thousands of people would be infected and dead in the weeks and months ahead. The governors of all 50 states put various degrees of restrictions on the freedom of movement of their state's residents. Stores, businesses, and all manner of social activity were limited, and in some states, they were forbidden. Residents were either requested or required to stay at home except for what the governor thought was essential activity. And these activities were defined differently in each state. And they were also required to keep a social distance from each other when they were out. Well, for many, that was okay in the beginning, and people mostly understood the need to keep safe from a virus that even the experts didn't know too much about. So most people followed the guidelines and stayed home as much as possible. But there were consequences. For many, when they stayed home, their paychecks stopped coming. Some were furloughed without pay, and some just lost their jobs completely. They couldn't pay the rent, they couldn't buy food for their families, or pay the other bills that kept coming, pandemic or not. Today, millions of Americans are now unemployed and standing in line at food banks because whatever the government in Washington has done to help, it just hasn't been enough. And these lines are long because so many people need help. In San Antonio, Texas, for example, 10,000 people lined up for food at the San Antonio Food Bank. In Pittsburgh, the police set up portable toilets for the people who sat in the mile-long lines of cars waiting for hunger relief boxes from the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank. In some families, the stress levels went up exponentially because they were forced to stay at home together for weeks, which drove everyone crazy. And since the pandemic began, 
More than 22 million Americans have filed for unemployment insurance payments. So with all this stress and after all this suffering, the cork finally popped right off the bottle. The pressure inside was just too great and it had to be relieved. So when the president suggested that it was time to start reopening America, the people responded. There were demonstrations all around the country led by people who had had enough and wanted to get back to their lives. Strangely, it was the people in the blue states that were the loudest. And that was probably because it was the Democrat governors who imposed the harshest restrictions on movements within their states. In California, for example, skateboarding was forbidden. And in Los Angeles, the municipality had the Venice Skate Park filled with sand, 37 tons of sand, in order to keep the kids from congregating there. A spokeswoman from the Department of Parks and Recreation said, quote, We want them to follow the orders because the skate parks are closed until further notice. It's for the health and welfare of all Los Angeles residents, unquote. People have come by just to see what this looks like. And I've heard more than one say it looks like a giant litter box. It must have cost a fortune. And today, the governments at all levels in California look more like a nanny state than most. But you know what? Interesting. It's funny. The kids didn't take it lying down. With all that sand in there, they turned it into a dirt bike track. <laughs> Or take Michigan, for example. Their governor, Gretchen Whitmer, imposed some of the strictest constraints in the country. On March 23rd, she ordered all residents of Michigan to stay in their homes unless they're, quote, critical infrastructure workers, unquote. People are still allowed to leave their homes for outdoor activities, to care for family members, or to perform necessary government activities, or to get necessary supplies like groceries and medicine. Any gathering of any size, however, is forbidden outside of a private residence, and also forbidden is leaving home to go to work in an industry that Whitmer does not deem to be critical to life, health, or safety. Now here's an interesting thing. What do you suppose Whitmer considers to be critical to health, life, and safety? Let's see. Her list of facilities that are critical to health, life, and safety not only includes hospitals and other medical facilities, it also includes abortion clinics. Governor Whitmer said abortions, which she refers to as procedures, were part of maintaining, quote, life-sustaining health care. That's funny. It always seemed to me that abortions were life-ending and had very little to do with health care. She said, we stopped elective surgeries here in Michigan. You got that? They stopped, for example, if you want a, or if you need a knee replacement or a hip replacement, you're in a lot of pain. You can't get that. That's considered an elective surgery. But if you're pregnant and you want to terminate your pregnancy, that's okay. So she said, some people have tried to say that that type of procedure, by which she means abortion, is considered the same as elective surgery. And that's ridiculous, unquote. Well, in my world, Governor Whitmer, if abortion isn't elective surgery, 
I don't know what is. It also ends in the killing of an unborn baby, and that, in my world, is murder. Just saying. So Governor Whitmer has found a way to justify all of the draconian restrictions that she has imposed on the people of Michigan. She said, the goal here is simple. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. This will be temporary. This intervention is important to buy time so that we can create surge capacity in our hospitals so we can ramp up testing and develop therapeutic drugs that may lower hospitalization and fatality rates. Okay, so to do that, she shut down the bars, gyms, restaurants, in other words, any place that people are likely to gather. She left open grocery stores, restaurant takeout, pharmacies, and gas stations. And then on April 10th, she made it all tougher with a new executive order. This one prohibits people from traveling for vacations, lowers the maximum occupancy in stores, requires social distancing markers in high traffic areas of stores, and forces large stores to close off access to certain areas where items like gardening supplies, plant nurseries, seeds, house paint, flooring, and furniture are sold. So she is banning the sale of seeds and plants at the beginning of the planting season and says it's not essential. I guess she's not a gardener or a farmer. And she explained, quote, if you're not buying food or medicine or other essential items, you should not be going to the store, unquote, period. Hmm. This has been going on for over a month now, and many in Michigan have had enough. Last week, demonstrators descended on the state capitol in some 15,000 vehicles. Imagine carrying protest signs in something they called Operation Gridlock, and they loudly protested Governor Gretchen Whitmer's stay-at-home orders. She was having none of it. She said, quote, it wasn't really about stay-at-home order at all. It was essentially a political rally, a political statement that flies in the face of all science, all the best practices, and the stay-at-home order that was issued. This was a political rally that is going to endanger people's lives because this is precisely how COVID-19 spreads, unquote. But she was wrong because these people were mostly in their cars, and that's not how the virus spreads. So this is the way the political power works. If you don't agree with it, if your own quest for power supersedes the wishes of the people who elected you to office, then you marginalize them by making it all political. And that's exactly what she did. But the demonstrators have a point. And Governor Whitmer should be listening to them instead of shutting them down and doubling down on the restrictions. This is a free country, and they want to be free, to make their own decisions about how to keep themselves and their families safe. And they want to go back to work. They don't want free food, and they don't want a nanny state that tells them what they can and can't do in their private lives. America is not, and should never be, a nanny state. The government did what it had to do to stop the onslaught of the virus when it first arrived. And their job, part of their job, is to keep America safe. But now it is time to reawaken the sleeping giant and get our economic engines going again.
slowly, carefully, but also with hope and resolution. If there's one thing that Americans have learned in all this, it is how to keep themselves and their families safe in the face of this pandemic. And if, as free people, they decide to return to life as normal, as it was as much as they can, they have learned over these past weeks how to do that without putting themselves or anyone else at risk. Now, it's time for a short break, but when I come back, I want to talk some more about the politics of the pandemic. That almost sounds like an oxymoron, and it's a pity because sometimes the politics overtake the real issues involved in the pandemic and put us all at risk. I want to continue this about what it means to reopen America, and as far as the politics are concerned, who is leading the charge against the American people? I'll be right back. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. As we celebrate our four-year anniversary, thank you for making it all possible. Well, should it news deliver truth and inspire us to reach higher? With blogs, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We are the vision of the voices, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Just before the break, I was talking about how there are usually two sides to any discussion, and I quoted a person who thinks that if we protest the stay-at-home orders, we lack empathy. I think the author was empathizing with the suffering of those who might be exposed to the virus if the economy reopens. It may be also that the author does not believe in our ability to abide by the rules, or is afraid that if we venture out before the virus is cured and before they find a vaccine to protect the rest of us, then we will also come to it. And maybe the author also believes in the necessity for a nanny state to protect us all and tell us what to do. Well, I don't agree, of course, but I'm happy to have that discussion. And if you listen to the show regularly, you know that this is something that I talk about often. Because I believe that we need to talk to each other, that we need to exchange ideas and opinions, and that we need to try to understand each other better. We have to take responsibility for our actions, 
particularly now, so that we can reboot our economy and get back to our jobs, even though the threat of the virus is still with us. Benjamin Franklin once said, quote, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety, unquote. He wasn't talking about a pandemic, although he might have been. He was talking about taxes. But the message translates, and it's loud and clear. This, my friends, is a legitimate subject for discussion. Oh, if we only could, this virus, which should have been an opportunity for us to come together to discuss the things that we agree on, and those, and particularly those we disagree on, about the things that trouble us and about the things that please us, civilly and politely. Right now, though, it's all about how we perceive the reopening of America, and we disagree a lot. If we believe that Americans can be responsible enough to live by the rules in order to keep us all safe, that would be wonderful, and maybe we could come to some kind of understanding. I was talking about taking responsibility and abiding by the rules, even if we're not compelled to do that, but because it is the right thing to do, particularly under these extreme circumstances. And it will not only help to ensure our own safety. If we follow the rules, if we observe the protocols, it will also help to ensure the safety of those around us. Honestly, I understand that there are people who are prepared to defend their opinion that the only way to survive this plague is to stay hunkered down and give it the best chance of dying away before we venture out. The problem is that there is no guarantee that it will die out or that we will have a real cure anytime soon. And there is another big issue at stake. And if we don't address the issues of the economy, we can be assured that it will collapse and we will all be the worse off for it. Maybe the best analogy is that this virus has waged war on us, and this is a war. And in war, there are casualties. But if we give in and surrender, then the number of casualties will be much, much greater. Look, there is no easy answer, and I don't consider myself hard-hearted or without empathy. But the harsh truth is that we need both a strong economy and a healthy population. So we have to find a middle ground in which we can at least partially satisfy the needs of both and so that we can all get through this together. So here is my compromise. It's not original. I think the president came up with it first, actually. But at least to me, it makes sense. Yes, we must protect our people as well as we possibly can and keep them safe, as safe as possible in the face of this plague. And yes, we must also start our economy before it is too late. We must do both. And the compromise is this. We need to reopen the economy slowly and carefully, beginning in places that are the least at risk, where there has been the lowest incident of infections and where the density of population makes the possibility of a renewed epidemic less likely than in the big cities. 
and we need to begin by maintaining the protocols of social distance, masks and gloves where appropriate, washing our hands frequently, not touching our faces, not shaking hands or hugging our friends and so forth. Let's face it, we need to return to work or there may be no work to return to. And we can do that so long as we use what we have learned when we were in quarantine so that we will stay safe and well and will be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And then, more than anything, we need to watch and analyze the outcome of our efforts to make sure that the progress we have made so far continues, that we are on the right path. It's not simple, it's not easy. In fact, it may be very difficult, but it is necessary on all counts because if our society fails, because we failed to rise up to the challenge when we had the opportunity to save our country, we may have won a few battles, but we will have lost the war. And that, my friends, is actually the point. In this country, where freedom is the foundation of it all, we also have a responsibility to follow the rules that will ensure an orderly and safe society where my freedoms don't restrict yours. I remember when I was a kid, that there was a basic rule about freedom that we all learned early and we knew by heart. It was simple and generally it was respected. It was this, your freedom ends where my nose begins. And that is exactly what we're talking about here. When we abide by the rules of containment, we are taking on responsibility not only for our own safety, but the safety of those around us. If the rules are enforceable under certain circumstances, then we can reopen our society slowly and carefully and enforce the regulations that ensure a safe society while we allow the people to return to a more normal life, buy their seeds and plant their gardens, visit their relatives, go to church, and live their lives. And there always will be a chance that a virus will catch up with them. But that was there anyway, even when they stayed at home and had their groceries and takeout dinners sent to them. Not everybody agrees. There are those who believe that for some reason they have the rights that we don't have. That they're entitled in ways that we are not, which brings me to my next two stories. There's a story in the news this week about the brother of the New York governor, TV headliner Chris Cuomo. He was diagnosed with COVID-19 and was supposedly quarantined in the basement of his home. He made a big deal out of that. He broadcasted from there and told his audience all about his quarantine, how he was separated from his family and so forth. Then he finally emerged from his quarantine, a moment which he captured on video. The only thing was that quarantine is at least 14 days. And only last week, Cuomo was seen in the upscale Long Island community of East Hampton. He doesn't live there. And that's not where he was quarantining in his basement. Uh-uh. But while he was there, he was walking on the street without a mask, without any quarantine protection, although he is a very well-known figure because he's on national television. Anyway, while he was there, he got into a fight with somebody, 
someone he called a jackass, loser, fat tire biker. Hmm. Because the biker dared to ask him why, if he was so famously infected, was he breaking quarantine without a mask? Cuomo answered him with the rudeness you would expect. Who the hell are you, he said. I can do what I want. And he's just the kind of person about whom I've been talking. The one who will not obey the rules, who will flout his authority, whether he actually has any or not, who will consider himself somehow above the rules and will be obnoxious and brash in letting you know that his rule-breaking is none of your damn business. Although in this case it certainly is because by ignoring the rules, he's putting you at risk. Now, the second story is uh, about another rule breaker, an elitist, who thinks that she has rights that you don't have. Who would believe that in the middle of the worst pandemic the world has seen in more than a hundred years, the Democrats would be picking another fight with the president? And not only with the president, but with the American people. It's just beyond understanding. And this person is one of the most powerful women in the country. The Democrats ignored the warnings about the growing pandemic, the ones that came in January and February. On the contrary, they encouraged people to ignore them and to mingle, the way Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi did in San Francisco's Chinatown on February 24th, when she took a walk into this famous neighborhood and urged everyone to come on down. But now she is criticizing the president for ignoring the warnings and delaying the mitigation that came later. And at the same time, she is denying that in going to Chinatown in February, she herself was downplaying the threat of the virus. Pelosi appeared on Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace this week to discuss the novel coronavirus. Wallace reminded his viewer that on February 24th, Pelosi, quote, went on a walking tour around Chinatown, unquote, to promote tourism. And then he played a clip where she assured Americans that everything is fine here and they should come on down. She said she was responding to the president's references to the Chinese virus and the Wuhan virus, which she said were racist. And she was showing support for the Asian American community. She tried to justify her video by saying, quote, what we were trying to do is end the discrimination, the stigma that was going out against the Asian American community. And in fact, if you will look, the record will show that our Chinatown has been a model of containing and preventing the virus. And I'm confident in our folks here and thought it was necessary to offset some of the things that the president and others were saying about Asian Americans and making them a target. <sighs> She went on, we want to be vigilant, she said, about what is out there in other places. We want to be careful about how we deal with it. But we do want to say to people, come to Chinatown. Here we are, careful, safe, and come join us. What? She ignored the question entirely, which is what politicians are trained to do, and she's been doing it for a long time. And what she said made no sense at all. It's a pity that Wallace didn't go after the real answer instead of letting her slide. He did ask, however, if Nancy Pelosi thinks she was, quote, adding to this perception that there wasn't such a great threat 
by walking around without any masks and assuring Americans that it's perfectly safe. When she said that the president wasn't taking the virus seriously in January, she neglected to explain why it was okay for her to wander in close quarters with her group in late February without masks or social distancing. She said that was okay, but it wasn't okay. And here, as in many other situations with the elite, the rules are different from them than for us. Nancy Pelosi is rich and spoiled and privileged, and she holds significant power as Speaker of the House, a position she fought tooth and nail to win. She justifies whatever she does with answers that are increasingly incoherent as she gets older. She said that her trip to Chinatown was justified, but she was putting her own staff and the people around her at risk. That was just irresponsible. It was sheer hubris and absolutely absurd. She and her staff are just as vulnerable to the virus as anyone else. She knew the guidelines, but she was defying the wisdom of the day, which called for social distancing and avoidance of large groups. She didn't either. She ignored the rules that all of us are expected to obey, and she was advising others to do the same. This is Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House. She's an important woman. Her behavior was both reckless and inappropriate. And for everyone involved, it was more than a little bit dangerous. She should have been setting the example, and instead, she was blatantly disobeying the rules. So here she is in Chinatown, traveling with a videographer to capture every precious moment of her visit and surrounded by a group of adoring fans and her invitation to the whole world to come and join her. Outrageous. And by the way, this all happened three weeks after President Trump had announced partial restrictions against people traveling to the United States from China, although the World Health Organization was still saying that the threat to the U.S. was low. So which was it, Nancy? Are you believing what the World Health Organization is telling you? That the threat is low? Or do you believe that there really is a virus? And it is a threat. And we all need to be mindful of what we need to do to stay safe. To be fair to Pelosi, although she's hardly fair to anyone else, three days after her little jaunt through Chinatown, Robert Redfield, the director of the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, was still telling a congressional subcommittee that the risk of contracting the virus in the United States was still low, even though he warned that we would most likely see more cases as the virus spread around the world. You know, this is a very complicated story because there are conflicting versions and competing directives from what should have been trusted sources but have turned out not to be trustworthy at all. We find out that the Director General of the World Health Organization, who has been telling the President that the information he is getting from China is true, and that China is doing a good job dealing with the virus, and that the risk to the United States is small. That this man is really a close buddy of Xi Jinping. And everything that he is telling the President is meant to support and protect his friend, the man who is the president of China. He was doing this right until the end of March. 
These were all lies, backed up and supported by the CDC, by the way. This isn't a new story. The mainstream media has been all over it, particularly whenever they think it shows how Trump has mismanaged the U.S. response to the virus. In fact, that is generally the only stories that they ever publish. Only they're dead wrong because the president hasn't mishandled it. Given how often he was misled by people who were supposed to be trustworthy, his responses have been powerful and timely, but they were based on the advice and counsel from the doctors and scientists whose job it was to advise him. Now we need to take another quick break, but when I come back, I'll be winding up this story about the president, and I'll be telling you another story about the most powerful woman in America and what she did this time to indulge her ego. Did you know the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? The real troubling statistic is that we spend seven years of our life trying to get to sleep, struggling with racing minds, tossing and turning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Sleep is proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. Until now, most sleep supplements haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. said back on January 22nd that the U.S. had the virus, quote, 100% under control, unquote. He must have been pretty confident that it was. The World Health Organization was still insisting that the threat to Americans in the United States was low, and there was only one case of the virus in the whole of the United States, a patient who had just returned from a trip to Wuhan. With only one patient, in all of the country, he had to be pretty confident that the risk was low and that everything was under control. But when two other patients appeared during the week that followed, President Trump shut down travel from China almost immediately. It seems to me that this is acting extremely quickly, and no doubt he still thought it could be kept under control. This is a big country, 330 million people and only three people had the virus. No wonder he thought it was under control. The Democrats keep accusing him of acting slowly and inappropriately. But here's the thing. The Democrats have been projecting their own bad deeds on the Republicans for a very long time. They did it in the Russia-Russia investigation that was built on a web of lies and disinformation and the collusion that they blamed Donald Trump for. They committed themselves when they tried to accuse him of collusion with the Russians. That was based on a fabric of lies in what became known as the Steele dossier, which they used to fraudulently acquire FISA warrants to spy on the Trump campaign. Only it came out later that the dossier was bought and paid for by the Democrat National Committee. And they did it again, during the kangaroo courts that they convened in Congress in order to impeach the president for non-crimes that he didn't commit. 
but they did, and they either covered them up or they ignored them. For example, they accused the president of demanding a quid pro quo from the newly elected Ukrainian president Zelensky, which he did not. But they totally ignored the quid pro quo that then Vice President Joe Biden demanded by threatening to withhold $1 billion loan guarantee if the Ukrainians didn't fire a prosecutor who was investigating his son. And they ignored it even though Biden bragged about it on national television. But the Democrats said, and did, nothing. And Biden is now their candidate for president in 2020. What hypocrisy. And then, the Democrats, led by none other than the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, held up the coronavirus stimulus bill for a week in order to make sure that their pet projects, like funding for the Kennedy Arts Center, would be also included although those projects had nothing to do with the virus. So while she was fiddling around holding it up, people were dying. But the Democrats accused the president of delaying relief for Americans. That's called projection. When you project the things that you have done onto someone else and claim that they have done it instead, and it comes out as an accusation rather than a compliment. I've talked a lot about this on the show, and there's a lot of material to draw from because this is standard operating procedure for the Democrats, and they're far from through. The hypocrisy of the Democrats is exceeded only by their cold and tone-deaf responses to their own constituents. The worst is Nancy Pelosi herself, and she does it all the time. She has claimed to be prayerful in her role as Democratic Party leader in the House. Only last week, she appeared on the Late Late Show with James Corden and gushed about her stay-at-home activities and how she was staying busy under quarantine. She was so virtuous. Her favorite activity, she said, was stocking up her freezer, which, by the way, is a top-of-the-line unit that retails for $24,000, according to Charlie Kirk, who was founder of Turning Point USA. And as we found out when she opened it to show the world, it's filled with lots and lots of ice cream. Now, I was raised in a home where chocolate was right at the top of the major food groups. We had chocolate all the time everywhere. So I understand Pelosi's love of chocolate. But that's not the point. You see, if you love ice cream the way I do, and you don't live in a seven and a half million dollar house like she does, then maybe your favorite ice cream is Briars, for example, which costs about six dollars for one and a half quarts. Or if you want to spend a little more, you can buy Ben and Jerry's at about six dollars a pint. Or you could really splurge on Haagen-Dazs and spend about eight dollars a pint. Unless, of course, you buy it at Walmart's, in which case it's much less. And if you are like most people, You buy one or two, maybe three, and you keep it in your freezer and enjoy it for as long as it lasts. Then maybe you go back to Walmart and buy more. But Pelosi doesn't shop at Walmart, and her gourmet ice cream is Jenny's, and that sells for $13 a pint. And her freezer, which is huge, by the way, just imagine what kind of a freezer you can buy for $24,000. And she proudly showed the world on late night TV that it was not only huge, 
but it was chock-a-block full of what looked like hundreds of dollars worth of ice cream. Designer ice cream. $13 a pint ice cream. Well, she certainly did stock up, and she showed the world how much fun she was having. She said, I don't know what I would have done if ice cream had not been invented. Oh, my, how spoiled can you get? Well, this is the congresswoman showing off what millionaires buy when they have nothing else to do, whose district in San Francisco is so impoverished and so overrun with the homeless that the sidewalks are littered with used hypodermic needles and human feces, plagued by drugs and rats, where violence is rampant and nobody, certainly not Nancy Pelosi, seems to give a damn. She's happily ensconced in her multi-million dollar mansion, eating her designer chocolate ice cream, and she apparently doesn't give two minutes of thought to the misery that lies just beyond the gates of her wealthy community. She's just one example of the tone-deaf attitudes of some of the people we have sent to Congress. And would you believe that in the middle of all this disarray and misery caused by the pandemic and the subsequent loss of jobs and income, Congress, this week, was getting ready to vote on giving themselves a pay raise. You can't make this stuff up, my friends. The Democrats said they had a bipartisan support. But in an election year, guess what? They finally decided it wouldn't look good to the voters. You think? Here's another story I'd like to share with you. It's not a happy story, but it is interesting. The pandemic we are living through now is challenging our leaders all over the world to find solutions to problems they have never faced before. They must find a way to keep their people safe against a virus that has no cure, no vaccine, about which we know very little, and which mutates so rapidly in ways we have not begun to understand. It is continually showing new symptoms, and it affects different people in different ways, hitting some people painfully hard and some people almost not at all. As we work our way through this, living with COVID-19, it's something that simultaneously separates us physically, and yet somehow, in other ways, binds us together in the shared experience. There are many stories that will come out of this, and at some point, we will be able to say, we were there. The last plague of this magnitude, actually it was much worse, happened in 1918, and it was similar in some ways to what we're going through now, and very different in others. It began in the spring of the last year of the First World War. It infected 500 million people and killed somewhere between 50 and 100 million people around the world. That virus killed more people in one year than were killed in the entire four-year war on both sides. They called it the Spanish flu because Spain was the first country to report it. By and large, the countries that were engaged in the war didn't talk about the virus, maybe because it would show weakness and vulnerability or give something away to the enemy. But Spain wasn't at war with anyone, so it was free to report on the virus that wasn't showing favoritism and hit everybody very hard. So the name Spanish flu comes from those first reports. 
There were approximately 1.8 billion people on the earth in 1918, which would be about 20% of today's population. What happened in 1918, the spread of the virus to so much of the world, would not happen today the way it happened then, and not nearly to the same degree. Today, the world's population is more than 7.5 billion people. And if COVID-19 killed at the same rate as it did in 1918, that would be some 370 million people dying from the coronavirus. And that is not going to happen this time around. But make no mistake, this is a nasty piece of work, and this round of pandemic is not going to be easy. But also keep in mind that our science is much more advanced than the state of the art was 100 years ago. And the particular dynamics that made the rapid and devastating spread of Spanish flu back then are totally different from life in the 21st century. So let's get back to the story. Recent historical research has revealed that the Spanish flu pandemic may have been greatly exacerbated by World War I itself. Due to the nature of transportation at the time and the nature of the war, the virus spread quickly to Europe and Africa. The virus first appeared at Fort Riley, Kansas on March 4, 1918. Had there not been a war going on, with the constant movement of troops back and forth, it might never have developed into anything more than localized flu. But the transports were going on, they were crowded, and sanitation was still a thing of the future. By March 11th, the flu had already traveled to Queens, New York, and that was only seven days after it was originally identified at Fort Riley. And then, on a ship bound for France, it was transported to Europe. 45,000 American soldiers died from it. So how was that plague different from the one we're facing now? Well, the dynamics of that plague were very different and the results were disastrous. As American troops deployed to Europe in great numbers, they carried the Spanish flu with them. In the spring of 1918, the virus spread like wildfire through England, France, Spain, and Italy. An estimated three-quarters of the French military was infected by the spring of 1918 and about 50% of the British troops. But the first wave of the virus wasn't particularly lethal, although it was characterized by high fever and usually lasted only three or four days. The death rate was similar to that of seasonal flu. But then there was a second wave in the fall, from September through November, and that one was deadly. It killed young and old and everyone in between. In the month of October alone, 195,000 Americans died from this flu. What was most shocking was that healthy young men and women were dying by the millions all over the world. Their symptoms were much worse than those that had appeared in the spring. They included raging fevers, nasal hemorrhaging, and a brutal pneumonia in which the patient's lungs would fill up with fluid and they would drown. Autopsies on soldiers killed by the second wave of the Spanish flu described the heavy damage to the lungs by saying they were like the effects of chemical warfare. It is possible that at least some of the devastation was caused by the unwillingness of public health officials to require quarantine in wartime. In the United States, there was a severe shortage of nurses who were supporting the war effort, and this was exacerbated because the Red Cross refused to hire African-American nurses. 
And then, after the second wave had passed, there was a third wave, and that began in Australia and quickly spread back to Europe and the United States. And the third wave was also lethal, and millions died. The major difference between the Spanish flu experience and COVID-19 is that in the early 20th century, medical science was still in its youth. Microscopes of those days couldn't even see a particle as small as a virus. And while science today is not only able to see the virus, it can develop medicines to cure it and vaccines to prevent it. This may not be an easy experience for us, but there is hope that we will soon be able to understand it, to cure it, and to protect people from getting it. That is part of the wonderful thing about living in the 21st century. Now, a quick story on a lighter note. You remember I told you about Director General Tedros of the World Health Organization? Well, the insanity of Hollywood is something we've talked about before and we know a lot about. We've heard a lot about it. We hear it constantly. This last week, Lady Gaga has called the World Health Organization's Director General Tedros, who conspired with China to withhold critical information from world leaders, including Donald Trump, about the seriousness of the developing pandemic. She called him a superstar. Why we give 30 seconds of our time to anyone in Tinseltown who shares an opinion on any subject is beyond me. They live in the fantasy world of the rich and famous and not so famous in cities overflowing with illegal immigrants and the homeless, but they have no clue about the real world and the real people now suffering because of the impact of COVID-19. And before I leave you, I will tell you one more story about uh, our favorite person to poke at, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, better known as AOC. And what did she do? What did she say? Well, more of the same, I guess. But here's what she said. Earlier this week, when the price of oil came crashing down, she sent out a tweet in which she said, quote, you absolutely love to see it. This, along with record low interest rates, means it's the right time for a worker-led mass investment in green infrastructure to save our planet. What? She was reveling in the presumed failure of an entire industry that supports the lives and families of millions of people in America. Why is that something to celebrate? Oops. She deleted it immediately. But of course, it's already saved for posterity. Twitter mania is going to be the downfall of many stupid people who write the first thing that comes into their heads and then regret it too late. Oh well. Well, my friends, the time has flown by. The hour is over. Thank you for spending it with me. I hope you have a good week a healthy week, and a safe week. God bless. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been 
The Friedman Report.